would you take some time, pray with me before we open up God's word. Let's ask for the Spirit's help in the preaching, in the hearing, in the application of what the Lord has to say to us this afternoon. Uh, Father in heaven, we do come uh, again and just as we've been praying throughout the week about this sermon and this moment in time, when we open up the scriptures and read and preach and expound what is communicated from you to your people, to the church, we're asking for that work of your spirit, Lord, that gives us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to be open and receptive, and that that life-giving, spirit-empowered word would find its mark into our souls, into our hearts, as we hear, as we listen, as we do it prayerfully, asking for the Spirit's guidance, Lord, that it would produce fruit, just as you promised. You, you said your, your words go out, and they do what you desired them to accomplish. They don't return to you ineffective yet they find their place. And so we're here to humble ourselves and say, Lord, speak to us. You know the limitations of the preacher, even the limitations of all of us as hearers, and yet your spirit can do this, and we trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're a few weeks into a series through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The title of the series is Church Building, God's plan for the future is a study about how the people of God at a certain point in history were finding their way back to God. They had been in exile for some time, nearly 70 years, and were at the point in the story where God was arranging things supernaturally through the Persian king and in the hearts of the people to call them back. They're in exile a thousand miles away from their homeland, the promised land, Jerusalem, Judah, where they were from. And they make the long, difficult journey all the way back as a large group of some 42,000 people make this hike, thousand mile hike. And now they're back in their what used to be their homes and their villages and their towns and they're around Jerusalem in the area of Judea. The reason they were in exile was because they had a worship problem. They were designed to worship. God's people are designed to worship. You're designed to worship. We're created to be worshipers, but something goes wrong in our hearts and our, our worship goes amok. And these folks had uh, centuries of history of their worship just like going crazy, like crazy, like worshiping anything and everything, like, like, a, like an addict looking for a fix, oblivious of how much it hurts or harms or how wrong it might be, just I, I, gotta, I gotta have it. And so they ended up worshiping every God imaginable, anything that held out any remote sense of adoration, any remote sense of promise, any remote sense of, oh, this will help you if you bow down to it. And they did, in spite of decades, even centuries of 
prophetic warnings not to do this in spite of the realization that they had been called by God to worship one God, the God who is the Lord of all, their hearts ran in every direction. And because of this, the Lord sent them into exile. Kind of a last resort. Tried, I spoke, we pleaded, we appealed, we warned, I sent prophet after prophet. You would not listen. And so, the last resort, into exile, sent away from your home. You're scattered. You're among people you don't know in a strange place, strange language. It's all different. It's, you're, you're no longer a people. You're no longer in the promised land. You're no longer where you're supposed to be. You're away from home. And that's where they had been. And now they're back, just back, just finished the trip, and we're in chapter 3. Let's read six verses together of Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Joshua the son of Josedak, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Let's stop there. They're just back. And the first thing they do is worship. They're just back in town. Long journey. And the first thing they do is worship. This is the people of God getting it straight. Getting it right. What got them into exile was a worship problem. They worshipped badly, wrongly. They worshipped everything, anything. And now they're back. Now they have experienced a miraculous work of God's grace to reunite them, to regather them, to restore them, to bring them back home. They've got a fresh start. And the first thing they do is they start to worship. If we were to take or find or look for one word to describe the people of God, one word that works well is worshiper. We are worshipers. If nothing else, we're that. We're called to be that. If you belong to the people of God, the very core of who you are, the very essence of what we are called to be and do as God's people is to worship, to worship Him. If an outsider observed the people of God or somebody looked at us, 
what would they see? Someone could look at us and say, there is no God, I don't believe in your God, I think it's all hokey, I think it's all nonsense. But they should, and would they be able to say this about us? But those people worship. Whether I believe in their God or not, this I can see. This is clear. These are people that worship. If we were to take an honest assessment of ourselves, of our group, of our church, of the people of God, this is not to insult you, this is simply to quote the Apostle Paul, we would have to say, now many of us were wise according to worldly standards, not many of us were powerful, not many of noble birth, but that God chose us and because of him we are in Christ who became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is why we are first and foremost worshipers of him who saved us. This is what our text can teach us this afternoon to remind us, to stir up in us that as the people of God, we are first and foremost worshipers. Any true life with God begins and continues with worship. And there is no life with God or living for God without it. Our first order of business is to worship, to be worshipers. Failure is what led to the exile. And now the people of God are regathered, reconvening. And the first thing they do is to get this right. Let's start with worship. Can I just ask you a question up front? How's your worship? If we could take our worship temperature We've got to ask ourselves, where is our heart at? Uh, what I'm talking about is your sense of adoration for who God is that affects you, that moves you, that compels you, that drives you. Is that the operating system that your life is functioning on? My adoration my gratefulness, my how high I see God, that that is what is moving me. That is what is compelling me. That is what is changing me. I live in that energy. Let me break the message down. First point, they began with worship. First thing they did. The author lays it out in such a way that he's got the whole company. Last week we listed all the names. We've got all the people. We've got these tens of thousands of people gathered and jumps right into chapter 3 with the next thing. They all gathered in Jerusalem. Now, trying to piece together when exactly this took place is a, is a little bit challenging, but it probably took place quite soon after they arrived. In verse 8, which we didn't read, it talks about now in the second year. So what happened in the verses we read has taken place in the first year. And the author tells us now in the seventh month, 
they gathered. Now, it's unlikely that that seven month is trying to indicate it's been seven months since they made the trip, and now they're in the area, they waited seven months, and now they're gathering, because that seventh month is very particular in the Jewish calendar. It was one of the major feasts. The, the first day of the seventh month, seventh month started the Feast of Trumpets. On the 15th day was the Day of Atonement, followed by the Feast of Booths. And our text that we read makes several references to the festivals and, and, and insisting that what these people were doing was they were getting back on track with the Jewish calendar, with all the things that God had commanded. So while we don't know exactly when they arrived, but we've got it in the first year, and it's the seventh month, it is possible that we're talking about arriving in the area, find your home, and in a matter of weeks, everybody convenes in Jerusalem. I don't know, think in your mind just practically what that's like. You just finished a thousand mile hike. Took you about four months to do it. The blisters on your feet have not yet healed. And all of a sudden, it's coming up the first day of the seven month. And it's time to leave your home yet again, pack up, and go to Jerusalem. This was their priority. They made this their priority. Not only must they have been tired, sick of hiking, sick of camping, and that's what the Feast of Booths is. It's a week of camping. And they step right back into it again. And it also says in verse 3 that fear was upon them. Now, even though they were returning to towns that they were familiar with, they used to live there. But that was 70 years ago. A lot has happened since then. A lot has changed since then. There were a lot of other peoples living around there. The people of Ashdod, Samaria, Ammon, Moab, Edom. These were the peoples of the land. Not to mention, it's very possible and quite likely that there were still some remaining Jews living there in that area. Possibly under the impression that they were in the right for staying. They did not believe the word of Jeremiah that we should go into exile. No, we're going to stand for our land and stand for our God. So they could very well have been there thinking, you were the cowards for leaving. And now you show up back here. The reality was these people moved back into the area and they really didn't know. They were not walking into a safe place. They didn't know who was around. They didn't know what kind of enemies. And we'll be seeing more as we study our way through these two two books that that they did encounter a lot of opposition. They were not in friendly territory. And they knew it. They could feel it. Fear came upon them. But they knew one thing for sure. This time, they had to get worship right. This time, They had to get their heads and their hearts clear about who they were and why they were there. And so against all the obstacles, against all the odds, against all the how they felt about it, how tired they were, how sore their feet were, whatever was going on in their lives, when that seven month hit, it was time to be in Jerusalem. And it says, and they gathered like one man. 
one person, the whole group was unified and they gathered in Jerusalem. First order of business, worship. Second point, worship began with an altar. They knew they needed to worship. They were committed to it, and they were committed to doing it God's way. Jewish history has worship always beginning with an altar. Now, it's important to, if I could insert a point right here that true worship, genuine worship, biblical worship is always a response to God. It's always God does something. God shows up. God acts. God does something. And then God's people respond with worship. Now, maybe that's too simplistic or you would assume that or you would think that. But it's, the, the point is it's, like it's not a human initiative. Okay, you, you and I just deciding, oh, I'm going to go worship something, someone. I'm going to start worshiping. And as soon as you do that, you start realizing if, it's, if you see it as initiating within yourself, you're probably bargaining for something in return. You're looking for a paycheck. You're looking for a wage. Now, some of you have been a Christian for a while. Many of you in the room, maybe most of you in the room, have, have known this challenge and this struggle in your heart. Have you ever thought something like this? Oh God, I don't understand why this is happening to me. I've been going to church. I've been giving. I've been serving. I've been doing this. I've been doing that. And now it feels like my life is falling apart. In other words, God, I don't understand why you're not paying me back for all the worship that I gave you, all the things I did for you. Those are difficult places, and it's not an uncommon dark place for most of us in our souls to be thinking in those terms. Here's, here's the remedy to that. The point is that worship, in the biblical sense, is always a response to what God has done. Listen to this quote from David Peterson. He wrote a wonderful book called Engaging with God, a Biblical Theology of Worship. He says, the worship of God's people in the Bible is distinctive in that it is regularly presented as the worship offered by those who have been redeemed. Acceptable worship does not start with human intuition or inventiveness, but with the action of God. Throughout the Old Testament, when God shows up and acts, somebody builds an altar and burns an offering on it. When God saved Noah and he comes out of the ark and he realizes God had just spared me and my household from the flood and the whole world, the whole rest of the world is dead and gone, he comes out of the ark, he builds an altar and he offers to the Lord. God calls Abraham, leave your country. And when Abraham leaves his country and goes to the land of Canaan, when he enters the land of Canaan and God speaks, this is it. This is the place. This is what I promised you. This will be your land. He builds an altar. 
and offers to the Lord. His son Isaac, same thing. When God spoke to Isaac, reiterated the promise, the promise was to pass through Isaac, first thing he does, builds an altar. Jacob had to flee for years after he offended his brother Esau, and when Jacob makes his journey back and arrives safely at home and finds out that Esau is not going to kill him but is actually friendly towards him, he builds an altar and offers to the Lord. This is the response. This is what the people of God have done throughout the Old Testament. God comes and meets. God comes and rescues. God comes and saves. And the response is, this is how we worship. We build an altar and we offer to the Lord. When God spoke to Moses, Moses, I want you to build a tabernacle. I want you to set up a tent. And, and Moses, pay attention. Do it precisely how I lay it out. It's important because this is a copy. This is a replica of something in, in heaven. And Moses lays it out. And when you come into the temple, the first stage, the first phase you come to in entering into the presence of God is the altar where the sacrifices are made. The first task for worship for these people in Ezra chapter 3 was to build an altar and offer sacrifices. We don't know what that place looked like when these people showed up in Jerusalem. The temple had been destroyed. Could very well have been just a bunch of rubble. It could have been desolate. We don't know exactly what was there. But they made it a point to find the right spot. Where does the altar go? Where was the altar? And they rebuilt it. Now what it was, was big. We all remember Foster Brereton's communion address when he described the altar. 30 feet, 30 feet, 15 feet. Huge fire pit with a ramp to get up to it, to bring the sacrifice. This was a massive building project, and they found the right spot, and they said, this is what we've got to do. This is the first thing we've got to do. I don't care if you're not settled into your house yet. I don't care if you unpacked every box in your garage yet. It doesn't matter. Seven month, day one, time to gather, time to meet, time to worship. And they built this massive altar and began to offer the sacrifices this was so important because it's the altar it was the place for atonement this is where atonement took place atonement an old english word that you can just take the english word and break it down at one mint it is a process it is a function of restoring and reconciling two parties that have been estranged that have been separated and atonement makes the two one together again it reunites it reconciles and this at one mint this process of bringing the estranged parties back together this involves a sacrifice of some kind Something that bears the cost of the thing that caused the separation. We have these decrees from God that lead us to this need for atonement. 
the wages of sin is death. The pronouncement in the Garden of Eden, if you disobey, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. That is a separation, an estrangement between the person and their God. We also know that without the shedding of blood, there's, there's no remission of sin. So the sacrifice on the altar was the atonement to restore someone who has sinned against God so that the two could be united together again. And that was the first stage of worship. That was the first stage of coming into God's presence. The first thing we have to do is we have to atone for what has caused you to be separated from God. Can you put yourself a, a little bit in the, in the shoes of these people and thinking through their history and, and, and to have any realization of, of where they were at in God's story? Oh, our forefathers rejected God, disobeyed God, and God had to punish them. And we have been in exile for 70 years. And we thought our lives were over. We thought we were going to die in a foreign place. We were barely able to hold on to that promise. And yet now, here we are. Here we are back in Jerusalem, back in our hometown, back where the temple was. And we're rebuilding this altar. And now the sacrifices are beginning to, to be made. And we're being reunited to our God. We are becoming, yet again, the people of God. With this renewed sense of worship, they were doing things, and it says several times in the text that we read, as it was written. Oh, they're checking the book. How do we do this? How do we worship? Let's worship precisely how God instructed us to, because that was the problem before. It's not that our forefathers were not worshipers. They were crazy, addicted kind of worshipers, like stupid worshipers that worshiped anything and everything. And, and now we're still worshipers, but now we're going to be true and right according to God's word. They did it that way. We've talked in the past weeks how there's lots of continuity between them and us. And you can sense and you can pick up already this, this concept of worship for them, for us. No, no different. We're, we're called to live under that same operating system of adoration of who God is, high view of God. And that is moving us and compelling us and driving us and influencing us in how we live our lives, how we worship. There are some, some things that are not. There's a discontinuity between then. So while they built an altar and offering these sacrifices, we know that when Christ came, that was done away with. All what they did was all with this hope for the future. It was all a shadow, all a type, all looking forward, knowing, and we know. There's no remission of sins with the blood of bulls and goats. It's not a fair trade. It doesn't match justice, does it? We know, we hate to admit it, but justice is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. That's justice. A bull for you, a lamb for you, a goat for you. 
And so it was to look ahead. So the real sacrifice shows up. God sends his son, becomes a man, takes on humanity, lives a perfect life. And then he lays down his life on the altar. Our altar is the cross. Christ lays down his life, gives it in our place. This is our gospel. This is our good news. This is our hope. Jesus is the new temple, the ultimate sacrifice. He's the door. He's the gate that gives us this entrance into the presence of God. Now, he's the way. Before, go by the altar, offer your bull, have it burned up, have it sacrificed. That's your gift. That's your atonement. That makes the way for you to enter into God's presence. Now we have a once-for-all sacrifice. And the curtain opened up. And you and I get free reign into the presence of God because of that sacrifice. It began with worship. Worship began with an altar. And thirdly, worship began a new way of life. The message, what I'm trying to emphasize is this was first. They worshiped first. I want to encourage you, worship first. Don't know what to do, struggling, getting a little lost, not sure what God has for you, wondering what the next step is, worship first. Start worshiping. Find out what it means to worship, start worshiping. Start there, first step. In worship, from worship, a new life gets fashioned, gets formed. We we live out of that. Worship changes how we live. If we get worship right, we'll get living right. If we get worship wrong, living will go wrong. Worship, another old English word, worth-ship. Worship begins with this recognition, this acknowledgement of how worthy how worth, the worth of God. He's that good. He's that worthy. The more we see that, the more that sense of worship begins to form in our hearts. It is a response of recognizing something or someone's worth and then responding to it with expressions of adoration, of praise, or service. Tim Keller gives us a definition of worship that's seeing what God is worth and giving him what he's worth. So it was just sort of two-sided. I, I see something about God that he's worth so much. And then I act out of that recognition. My act of worship. My act of service. It's how we are created to live. It's how you and I were designed to, to recognize God's worth constantly. In all of life, I think, what, what would our lives look like if we really were living on that operating system? If every day of our lives was, was really under that heading and with that understanding, God is so worthy. He's so magnificent. And these people, 42,000 people, Standing there saying, I thought it was over. 
I never thought we'd see our homeland again. We screwed it up. It's bad. It's been a long time. And yet now they're back. With an overwhelming sense. Look at what the Lord did. Are you amazed that God saved you? Did you think you were a likely candidate for the grace of God? It's one of those things. We come in by faith, so I believe it. Yet I say, I can't believe it. I can't believe God did it. I just, I'm not sure there was nothing that distinguished me from the next person. And God set his affection on me for a reason I cannot explain except his love. And it's amazing. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I still haven't earned it. Still don't deserve it. But it changes how I think about God. Is that gracious? Is that loving? God, it was the, it was the love of God that initiated any concept of atonement. It's not under any obligation to do anything but follow through with his word. If you sin, you'll die. End of discussion. Not end of discussion. Beginning of discussion. Beginning of story. Beginning of redemption. So the love of God moves, compels him. Let's, I will devise a plan of redemption. I will make a way for your sins to be atoned for so that we could be reunited. So that you and I could be at one again as was intended from the beginning. New Testament churches, Christians today, worship is expressed in generally two kinds of forms, praise and adoration. It's everything from our meditations on the goodness of God to our verbal prayers of thanksgivings, our exclamations to one another about our testimony of the grace of God. It is our gathering together and our singing together. When we say worship, we often just use the word worship to describe the 25 minutes that we sing together every time we gather as a church. This is our worship. But certainly is so much more than that but it's not less than that, and that is significant. When we spend time singing songs together to God, that is a significant act of worship. Your voice is crucial. Even my voice is crucial when we sing together. And if you haven't heard me sing, you'll be amazed <laughs> at what I just said. Because when we start to sing, when the band leads us, we stand, we begin to sing, we open our mouths, we're like gathered as one man in the meeting room. And we begin to pronounce in song, Glorious things about God, His Son, redemption, our hope, our future, the grace of God 
in our lives, our love for him, his love for us, the work of his spirit. These are profound moments before the Lord. Please don't ever underestimate singing. Please don't stand with your hands in your pocket and your lips not moving when it's time to stand and sing. Please don't do it. You're, you're, you're not getting it. You're, you're ruining things. We, you have to stand. You have to stand. You have to sing. You have to project. Even if you can't hit the right note, project anyway. We need that voice. God is listening. It's important. It says something to God. It says something. It's a response of our adoration for him. That he called us, that he gathered us, that he made us. He's, he's calling us his people. He's calling us his treasured possession. We raised five children, and when I think back over raising these children, I think, okay, what were the, the, like the sweetest moments? Without question for me, the sweetest moments are when the kids were in the backseat of the van singing. They were singing at the top of their lungs. They were not necessarily singing on key. The song ne didn't necessarily make any sense. We can do better than that. But I'm sitting there as a dad driving the van, and the kids are in the back, hearts filled with joy, singing to the top of their lungs. And nothing, nothing was sweeter to a father's heart than to hear his children singing. So sing. So sing when we sing. Let God hear you sing. Sing when you don't feel like singing. Worship when it's difficult to worship. Don't know what to do. I, re I read about Job. If you just read the first chapter of Job, it's just, it just found out he lost everything. All his possessions, all his family were gone. Report after report in a matter of minutes, all dead, all destroyed, all gone. What does it say? He fell on the ground and worshiped. Came into the world with nothing. Looks like I'm going to be leaving this world with nothing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Worship is the answer. Worship is the next step. Worship is the first step. Worship is the first priority. Praise and adoration, acts of service, are also seen as worship. It's more than singing. It's more than praise and adoration. It's not less than that, but it's also our lives. Our, our lives lived sacrificially for the good of others. First Peter 2 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 refers to his service for the churches by saying, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He saw his service to the churches as an offering, 
a drink offering. Really what he's saying is, you know what? Even if all my effort towards you as a church is like somebody taking a glass of water and pouring it out on the ground as an offering to the Lord, I'd be glad in it. I see what I'm doing for you as an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord. Can you imagine how would this change us if all our service, all our effort, all our giving, all the energy we had to pour into helping others, serving the church, if it was an act of worship? We would instantly eliminate all complaining, wouldn't we? But I did this. I've been working so hard. What about this? It's all gone. It's all a drink offering. It's all a poured on the ground. It's all, I'm just, I'm just responding to what God has done for me. Makes my heart glad. And so I give. And so I'll preach to some people that fall asleep. And I'll tell some people about Christ that won't listen and will reject what I'm saying. And I'll serve some people that maybe won't even know it or appreciate it or ever come back and say thank you. It's like, it makes no difference. That, that was never part of the equation. The equation is God has done this for me. And so I offer myself back to him. And I serve out of that operating system. I live out of that strength. Acts of service in the New Testament give us long lists of very specific things. It's also just a very broad stroke, really. Friends, any, anything done because of what Christ has done for you with faith in your heart that is for the good of others, it's an act of worship. Fill in the blank. Write it however you will. If you can check off those boxes of why you're doing what you're doing and explain what you're doing and it fits into that category, you are worshiping. And just Hebrews chapter 13, just to whiz through that chapter, it encourages us with brotherly love, hospitality, prison visitation, a cherished marriage, a life free of the love of money, contentment, Imitating mature believers in the faith, careful about false teaching, having a heart strengthened by grace, offering up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Begin with worship. Worships began with an altar, and our lives are changed because of worship. We're reading about a people who lost their way. The worship team can come on up. We're about ready to close. We're tracking with the people that lost their way. They had a worship problem that got them lost, and now God is restoring them. And this is them seeking to get it right. This is them saying, we're, we, we don't want to go awry again with our worship. Now we want to worship rightly. We want to get worship right. Friends, how's your worship? 
acts of service, expressions of adoration. I know it would be easy to hear that question that I just asked and think, I really should do a little better. I could think of a couple more things I ought to be doing. You know, that's probably missing the point. Let's get back to the heart of worship, and let me ask this question. How's your adoration for God? How's your view of God? How glorious is he in your sight, in your heart? I would hate to have you leave this room thinking, okay, now I'm going to start doing this because here's an act of service. I can start doing that. I can start doing this, and I'll get this worship thing right when, in fact, it really flows out of how you see God. And I would recommend and suggest and implore you, if we're going to get worship right, it's going to begin with seeing God for who he is. And for us, that has to start at what for us, the altar for them, the cross for us. If you're really going to see God for who he is, we look to the cross and we see in that event, in that place, on that location, on that hill of Calvary where he laid down his life, the the expression of God's heart was there. The magnificence of his justice and his mercy was there. His love for a lost people, his plan, his willingness, his desire to take estranged children, sinners like you and me, and bring us back to be one with him. This makes God amazing. It makes us grateful. Let's stand. Let's stand together and worship.